morning, everyone. Uh, we're reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, from verse 1 to 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful underhand ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Amen. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, uh, on this occasion, as um, we've gathered to set aside those you've called to serve in ministry, May you show us from your word just what that involves and where the power for ministry is found and what our role is in that. And will you speak to each and every heart here and across our country and wherever people are watching and hearing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's wonderful to see you here, and it's, uh, it's very exciting to hear that there's a number of you online, uh, which we've become quite used to in the last year, I'm sure. I do want to particularly commend those of you who come to church today and then still watch me on a screen in the other overflow buildings. That takes some serious commitment, so well done. I wouldn't do it, but hey, you, well done that uh, you're here, and I'll come see you afterwards from a social distance. Um, let's have a look at uh, this passage, 2 Corinthians 4. I was thinking about this passage in the light of what happened today with the ordination of these three young men into ministry. And uh, as I've been reflecting on it this last week, it's really struck me just what depth there is here and the core of what it is we're all about. Um, I'm glad Martin didn't ask me, what do you do as a bishop? Because uh, I'd have to think about that a little bit. But it is a question that comes when you're in ministry. Uh, especially non-churchgoers will say, what is it you actually do? A friend of mine, actually, who's, who I knew from school, who's not a believer, um, you know, said to me, well, what's the purpose of what you do? You know, you, you, you're basically just taking up space on earth here, talking about heaven and not doing anything else. Um, and there's ways you can answer that if you're tempted to, when people say, what is it you actually do now that you're a minister? And you can kind of answer in acceptable ways by saying lots of things like, well, you know, I help families and I help people in their marriages uh, and we counsel people who are grieving and we teach people to love and care for one another and we manage care for the poor and we organize charity work. Uh, we speak up for the marginalized and the persecuted. Uh, we help local community leaders. Uh, we, we do, we're involved in education. You can answer all of those things and all of those are aspects of what we do for sure. 
But if you really pay attention to what the scriptures say ministers are set aside to do, it really boils down to one answer. Ministers are set aside to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord. Shumaila Evangeli. That's what we're set aside to do. That's what we were singing about. Ministers of the gospel are set aside to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord. Everything else is secondary to that. Now the problem is, of course, that doesn't really go down well uh, in social circles. But it, it is the reality and the core of what we're set aside to do. And if we lose sight of that, nothing else matters. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church who were tempted to give up on the gospel because of this very thing. This gospel Paul preached didn't seem very impressive or relevant. And in Corinth, which was very cosmopolitan and trendy and, and hip and happening, it didn't fit with the fashionable trends of the day. And lots of other super preachers were stepping up and saying, I've got something more spectacular to tell you, and they were more appealing and they were more skilled at their task and attracted more people. Also within Corinth, there were people who were thinking, oh, you know, this, this kind of just preaching thing isn't really impressive. The old religions were more impressive. We're going to go back to the old religions. We're going to go back to the old traditions of Judaism and, and, and all of those uh, comforts of our historical past and those visually impressive things uh, of our past. And Paul writes to the Corinthians who attempted to do this and to be, you know, dazzled by uh, all of the brilliance of the other tempting super celebrity preachers, and to show them, actually, in spite of how it looks on the outside, the glory of going back to your old religion is fading compared to the eternal glory that comes through the lordship of Jesus Christ that he preaches. And the contrast that he picks up here is, 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 is you'll see it in these first few chapters, this contrast between the fading glory and this eternal glory of the old covenant and the new covenant, you could put it. And in chapter 3, as a, as a context, he uses that contrast, talking about the old and the new, and going back to the old traditions, which is a fading glory, he says in verse 9 of chapter 3. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? He's contrasting the Old Testament uh, ministry and the new gospel, New Testament ministry. Verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? And he's contrasting the glory of Moses bringing the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant from Mount Sinai, who met with God and, and came to mediate God's law to the Israelites. But because he'd been in God's presence, the glory shone on his face. And they had to put a veil over his face. Well, mask is a more familiar term for us. Over his face to cover the glory so that people wouldn't be um, dazzled by it until the glory faded and then he could take the veil off again. Paul says that glorious ministry of Moses is fading in comparison to the eternal glory of this new covenant ministry preaching and proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ, the kingship of Jesus so Paul says, don't get distracted by those things, but keep focused on this ministry of the glorious gospel. Don't lose heart, he says there in verse 1, or don't give up, or don't get despondent 
or disillusioned in the face of all of the other distractions, chapter 3, and of the persecution and hardship, chapter uh, 5, that will come. And in the middle is this great paragraph on just what gospel ministry is all about. And there's three things I want to leave with you briefly. First of all, there's a picture here of the minister's conduct, the minister's conduct. We don't lose heart. What do we do? Well, there's a lot of things we don't do. He says, yeah, there's three of them. We don't do what all the other super apostles are doing. We don't do um, all of the spectacular things that they do to attract a following. Now, in those days, you attracted a following by hiring a whore like this and, and speaking um, with great oratorical skill to impress people. That was the entertainment of the day. It was before YouTube. And so this is what people did. They went to these halls and they listened to spectacular preachers who would impress them and dazzle them. Paul says, that's not what gospel preachers do. And you see there in verse 2, rather we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And he's contrasting what the super celebrity preachers are doing and what God's preachers are called to do. And nothing has changed. We still have all the super celebrity preachers trying to attract you with the impressive. And now there's a lot of technology that helps to do that. And you can do all sorts of crazy things to get more followers to hear you and your spectacular celebrity message. You know, what does your preacher do? He just stands in a pulpit and preaches. Our one does TikTok and skydives while preaching. You know, that's, you do those spectacular, impressive things. To get people following. The more followers, the more, you know, true the message must be. That's the world we live in now. Paul says we don't do those things. There's three practices he highlights here that we don't do. We, we renounce, he says, disgraceful and underhanded ways. The, the word refers to a kind of a, a moral deviousness. Almost like it's leaning towards like a sexual predator type thing, but you actually prey on people by being devious with them and enticing them to follow you uh, and your message. A kind of a shameless manipulation. And by the way, ministry does attract people like that. I read a book once and it said, where to find your local neighborhood sociopath. You'll find them in politics and you'll find them in pastoral ministry because they get addicted to the power that they have over people. Beware. Gospel preachers do not use disgraceful and underhand ways. And gospel preachers do not use deception or cunning, secondly. We do not, in other words, misrepresent the message. You don't, the, the word really means to hide your true intentions. Like, oh no, I'm really concerned that you'll come to Jesus, but what I really want is your money. We don't do that. We don't, we don't use uh, deception or cunning and misrepresent our message. Uh, uh, it's a common tactic with the cults and the sects. They'll knowingly tell you a dis, a, an untruth because their doctrine teaches that it's for your greater good. And once you're caught in the web, then we'll tell you the real story. That's how cults work. That's not how gospel preachers work. Nor do we distort, he says, or tamper, 30, the word of God. And that word literally means adulterate. It means to take something pure and then to, to, to ruin it with something poisonous or toxic. And by the way, this is one of the most common tactics to deceive people, is you take something pure and then you adulterate it with your particular twist or, or, or particular uh, syncretism that fits your agenda. 
The true minister of the gospel does not operate this way. He doesn't do it this way. The true minister of the gospel says, rather, verse 2, by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Or by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. That's what we do. We don't adulterate. We don't alter. We don't manipulate the message. We lay out the gospel message plainly. The problem is we're tempted to try and make it sound better. We're tempted to try and make it sound spectacular. We're tempted to try and get uh, the whistles and bells and the bangs and the, and the whoops. That doesn't add to the message. It can sometimes distract from it. We lay out the gospel plainly and don't add any twist to it. That's the call of gospel ministry. What do we say? We say what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. And when we proclaim it, we're setting it forth plainly and commending it to your conscience. We leave it to you to make the decision. We don't have to impress you or, or, or try and manipulate into it. We let your conscience do the work. And it is always true that the word proclaimed plainly will bring results. There will be a response. People respond when the word is proclaimed. 2,000 years of gospel proclamation testify to that. And yet there are people who do not respond. But here's the thing. It's not actually them that do not respond. It's someone else who is opposed to it that blocks you from responding. Look secondly at the minister's opposition, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If people do reject the message, which happens all the time, every time the gospel is pro proclaimed, there are those who reject it. It's not because of them. It's not because there's some lack of education. It's not because there's a different back religious background. It's not because of any of those things. It's because someone else has blinded them to it. And it's quite striking what Paul says here. The real opposition is not people. The real opposition is not the aggressive, um, angry atheist. The real opposition is the God of this age who has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. And that's a very strong term Paul uses. It's the only time he uses that to describe the devil. Because that's literally what the devil is doing. He is snatching God's role here on earth. He tried to get Adam and Eve to do the same thing. He is usurping a role that is not his. He is making himself out to be God. And he had the gall to do it even to Jesus. And tried to put himself over Jesus. That's what he does. He sets himself up as the God of this age. And he uses that seized power to blind people to the light of the gospel, to blind people to the glory of Jesus, to blind you to the truth of who Jesus really is, who, as Paul says he is here, is the image of God. That literally means God made visible. If you want to see what God looks like, you look to Jesus. He is nothing less than God in the flesh. And only a satanic veil will blind you to that. It's interesting how he uses that contrast between the veil Moses used to hide the glory and the veil the devil uses to hide the glory today. That people cannot see the glory of Jesus Christ because there is a supernatural veil over their eyes. It doesn't matter how clear the preacher is. It doesn't matter how clear the preacher is. I've seen this so many times when I've shared the gospel with some people. 
And I'll be sharing the gospel, and two people will be listening. And I think I've done a fairly good job of communicating it. Both of them hear it. I ask if they understand it. They go, yes. One person says, I'm not interested. And the other person is on their knees in tears coming to Jesus. Is that because of any skill of mine? Clearly not, because there wasn't a uniform response. Because it's a supernatural work. Do you realize that? And sometimes people think, how many, you know, especially if I'm talking to unbelievers, how many people do you convert every week? I don't convert anyone. And no preacher should think he converts anyone. I don't have any power to convert any of you. I don't even have the power to convert my son to support Manchester United. I've tried. I don't have that power. How can I have the power to convert you to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I don't have that power. Because if, if, if unbelief is a supernatural blindness, conversion requires supernatural sight. God must do the work. We set, the for, we set forth the truth plainly, but God must do the work of opening your eyes. And what is the truth that we set forth plainly? Lastly, my brothers and sisters, what is the minister's message? Verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, he says, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is a critical contrast in this verse. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. You actually can't have both. You can't have this. It's either this or it's this. I remember when I, my very first preaching workshop, David Jackman, the guy who was doing the preaching workshop, said, uh, preachers must be very careful when they step up to preach the word, not to make it this. Because if you walk around like this, it's all about you. And God's word takes second place. You don't want to be like that. You want to be like this. That's the preacher's role. If I'm a gospel preacher, that's what I'm doing. I'm showing from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I don't do any other thing. I don't put myself here in the front of it at all. God uses the preacher to bring light to the word. And it's his Holy Spirit that does that. And if a gospel preacher tries any other way, he's in real trouble. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And what do we do with ourselves? Ourselves as servants, or literally slaves. Now, that does not mean that the gospel preacher makes himself a doormat for people to walk all over. No, because there is a rider there for Jesus' sake. We are servants calling people to Christ for Jesus' sake. And that's the gospel preacher's place in the church of God, the servant calling people to Christ. And in our world today, which is instant celebrity obsessed, it's very easy to get that wrong. And particularly with social media. You know, celebrities have almost become the accessible gods of this age. The accessible gods. You can tweet them in the hope that they'll retweet you or like it. And then you'll be on a cloud nine for, for weeks afterwards and tell everybody about it at dinner parties, boring them to tears, you know, because, you know, um, I don't know, can't think of any celebrities all of a sudden, you know, liked your tweet, Glenn Lyons. 
Don't fall into that trap. And it's easy, especially when you carry the status, to think the adulation, you know, matters. And you can start manipulating things in that way. Gospel preachers are the servants of all for the sake of Jesus. If you pursue ministry for status or popularity, Lord help you. What we proclaim, verse 5, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And ourselves as slaves, for Jesus' sake. And when we do that, what we are saying is we are trusting Jesus to open blind eyes. And we are trusting Jesus because we know from experience that that's how it works. Because that is what God did to us, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is what happened to me. This is what's happened to us. If you're a true preacher of the gospel, the experience of the veil being lifted is yours first. If it isn't, there's a problem. We too were once veiled in darkness until God opened our eyes to see it. It has nothing to do with me and my brilliance or ingenuity. There's nothing special about me that enabled me to come to Jesus and maybe not my other brothers yet. And do you see what supernatural power it takes, verse 6? Do you see what supernatural power it takes to open eyes that are blind to the gospel? The very same power that created the universe. He's referring to Genesis 1 here. The God who said, let there be light. Let light shine out of darkness. Creation. The power that brought creation into being is the same power required to open your eyes to see Jesus. Suddenly my power, not so big. And that is why, like my mother-in-law did, we pray for you. There's not a service or a sermon that happens without us being on our knees, praying that God will be at work in your hearts who hear it, that if you are blind to the truth of Jesus, that God will supernaturally lift the veil. Praying is as important as preaching. Because it is God who does the work of opening your eyes to see this. I'll tell you something scary. Sometimes it looks like the veil is lifted. And sometimes people come and they hear the gospel and they get it. But as soon as they get out the door, the veil comes down again. That's a scary thing because you never know when the veil's going to stay down for the last time before Judgment Day. And if under the preaching of the word, as you hear that Jesus Christ is Lord, that this Christ who has gone to the cross for your sins and has risen from the dead to call you to eternal life through faith in him, if you don't respond when that veil opens, will you have another opportunity? Or will you just continue to put it off? And today is an opportunity. Maybe you've come because you know some people here and you're interested in this whole ordination thing. But maybe you haven't been paying any attention to who Jesus is. And maybe the veil has been lifted for this moment. Will you respond then to Jesus? Will you turn to him and trust in him? Now that you've seen him for who he is, will you bow the knee to him and call him your Lord? Maybe today would be a good day to do that if you haven't done so yet.
Come, let's pray. Oh, how we pray that you have heard our prayers and answered and opened eyes to see Jesus as Lord. And maybe if that is you, and you've seen Jesus as Lord for the first time, why don't you cry out to him even now? Say, Jesus, be my Lord, as I turn and trust in you. And help me to follow you all the days of my life. For Jesus' sake. Amen.